0: Hello, and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott.
1: And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I like these calm little moments before the storm. It reminds me of Beethoven. Beethoven? Beethoven. Have you ever listened to Beethoven in your life, Cam? I w- will have you know that I was recently at a concert in Vienna listening to Beethoven music live. So there. You have just smacked me down. I feel silly now. That's right. In a classical hundreds-year-old concert hall. Wow. Look at you. A man of culture. Mm. That's right. I was there with all the other tourists in shorts and t-shirts listening to this. <laughs> with your little Kodak 35mm rolling it <laughs> just to get
0: to the next frame. <laughs> <laughs> well it's a momentous occasion here on spy Hearts. it's our 150th film review cam can
1: you quite believe it no i mean i really can't what started as a you know pie in the sky pandemic project hey let's talk about james bond movies and what have you week to week hey we could even talk about mission impossible or jason Bourne. who knows what else I never dreamed that, you know, 150 episodes later, we would be where we are and having tackled such a wide variety of the genre. No, it's a crazy,
0: crazy achievement that we've got this far. And it's all thanks to each and every one of you listening every week. And to celebrate this momentous occasion, we have a fantastic film coming up in just a little bit. But before we get there. We need to induct the latest spyhards diehards. Now you may be wondering what a spyhards diehard is, and if you want to beat one of those select few, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and the best of the best will get read out on the show and officially inducted into the diehards Hall of Fame. So I've got uh, I've got one here, Cam, that came in recently. What about you? I as well have one. I am a robot. My name is Cam. <laughs> <laughs> well, my one, Cam, comes in from Nick 3 or N apostrophe C 3. Nice. Is it nice? Sure. Sure. I'm sure they're very nice. An undercover hit. Agent Scott and Cam and their guests do a fantastic job of investigating some of the most thrilling and intriguing films ever put to screen. It's a good week for it. Mm. And they do it with genuine open-mindedness, curiosity, critical awareness, and good humor. I've discovered several new favorites and learned fresh information on nostalgic classics. SpyHards is the hidden secret weapon of my podcast arsenal.
1: I disagree with the critical analysis uh, element. But uh, other than that, uh, yes, I uh, thank you very much for that very kind review.
0: I just like the uh, idea of us being a secret weapon in someone's podcast arsenal or arsenal. Mm. Oh, okay, sure. Mm. I like that. I like that. But uh, NIC3, nice... Nick3, whoever you are, welcome to the SpyHards
1: DieHards Circle. Cam, what about you? Yes, I have a review from Mudguts, and that is a five-star review. Lots of detail. What a well-researched podcast. So many details about your favorite movies, plus a handful of ones you've never heard of. Worth the listen. It's on my weekly rotation. So thank you very much, Mudguts, and I am just so excited to induct someone named Mudguts to the SpyHards DieHards.
0: My guts, we wouldn't be here without you, and we hope you still love everything we put out. But there you go, folks. That's two inductees to the SpyHards, DieHards. Get in that list if you can by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't already, check us out over on patreon.com slash spyhards over 50 bonus episodes for you to check out for a very small fee per month that helps us here on the show and we're currently saving up to build a website for you all to get even more spy jinx in your life but until then let's get to the review here we go cam it's a momentous occasion 150 spy movie reviews now when i said we were going to celebrate i said i wanted everyone and then you told me maybe you know come back a little bit on that because that's a lot of editing for you and i i understand completely but i wanted one professional to join us with this momentous occasion coming back to spyhard for her fourth time on the show it is the one and only m from the verbal diorama podcast hello m how are you
2: hello scott hello cam uh professional i mean are, are you sure you've picked the right m is there, like, another one in your address book, like, that you've maybe missed? Like, maybe I was, like, the second one down. Because...
1: Um, <laughs> oh, I think, I think you're right. There's been a mix-up here. Oh, um, oh, oh I knew it. Uh-oh. Okay, Uh-oh. thanks, awkward. guys. Ooh. Bye. <laughs> it's been great.
0: We'll see you next time for your fifth time on the show. <laughs> Happy 150 episodes, Scott.
2: I mean, happy 150 episodes. That is an incredible achievement. So congratulations to you both. And I'm very sorry that I'm not the professional you were looking for. However, I think we can safely say that Leon probably is the professional that we're looking Mm. for. So, Mm.
0: Well, certainly. We certainly hope so anyway. But I think before we get to the film in question... It's been a beat since you were last on the show and we had you on to talk about um, Salt, actually. So Angelina Jolie's film Salt last time on the show and you left us with a moment that I'll never forget where I completely missed that they were singing Salt throughout the entire (laughs) film. And uh, I'll never be able to view that film properly ever again, thanks
3: to you.
2: I thought you were going to say, honestly, I thought you were going to say about the comments about Angelina Jolie's knickers. I thought that's what I'd left you with. But the salt thing I can deal with, so I'm glad that you didn't mention about the fact that I commented about, I think it was something to do with where her knickers went when she got changed. But, you know, the things that you have to think about on a movie podcast, it's like you have to get into the nitty gritty detail, you know, and Angelina Jolly's knickers are very important.
1: And nitty gritty,
0: <laughs> people want to know where those knickers, yeah, and they want to know where those knickers ended up. Exactly, and that is what <laughs> spy answers. Exactly. this is
2: this is all this is what I thought that you guys did. So I'm just like, what you talk about spy movies? I thought you talked about underwear. So
1: yeah,
3: <laughs> knickers. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, <laughs> I guess I'll see you around.
3: Bye.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, the briefing podcast on Patreon really has a new meaning now. Oh, oh, I like that. I like that I like
0: that, but em as I say, it's been a, a little while at least over a year, I think, yeah. since you were on for salt what's what's been new in your world? what's been going on with the podcast and yourself
2: uh, I mean a lot <laughs> so uh so yeah, I think salt was last June, I believe, so yeah, it's been over a year okay um and I mean, you know, I guess that means like eighty ish episodes of Herbal Diorama have come and gone in that time. Um, And, yeah. Co-founded the Independent Podcast Awards. That's a small thing. And...
1: um, Well, talk about that. (laughs) Talk about the Podcast Awards there. Uh,
2: Well, I mean, I just kind of had an idea and I thought to myself there are a lot of uh podcast awards that seemingly uh celebrate the the big names in podcasting and I thought, well, you know, it'd be good to have um a podcast awards that actually focused on celebrating the independent podcasts. And that's kind of where it came from. And as of recording, the ceremony was actually uh a few days ago. So uh so it's it's all been and gone now. <laughs> But it was it was amazing, you know. It was it was an incredible night, and um, everyone had a great time. And hopefully, we'll do it all again next year. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was uh, just it, the 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 entire team at Why uh, Now, who I worked with, the company down in London, uh, were incredible. They set the whole thing up, and I just basically consulted on it, and just was yeah, just trying to we we put like an advisory board together, we put a judging panel together and it was basically just independent podcasters, people in the media industry. Um and we obviously want to make it better next year. Uh we wanna Mm
3: -hmm.
2: we want to improve certain things. Um because obviously there's always room for improvement in these things. But um the, the general consensus was everyone was really positive about it and happy about it and well so (laughs) that I know of no one's turned around and said to me that um that they think I'm an absolute dick so uh hopefully (laughs) (laughs)
0: hopefully No, well, I, I was paying attention to the, to the social media on that one and keeping tabs on it, and I noted some of our friends were there. Uh, is Paul Dano okay? Yep. They were down there. Yep. W Rated were there as well. Both been previous guests, along with yourself there as well. So it's it's nice to see some of the Spy Hearts family making appearances uh, out in the wide world.
2: Yeah, and and obviously they are all amazing people. It was so lovely to meet them in real life, and just to meet other people as well, just like people that I've never spoken to on social media ever. And, you know, they were just Mm. like, you know, coming up and introducing themselves. And, yeah, it was really nice. Um, I was very nervous, shall we say, on the night. Uh, I was a little bit like a deer in headlights. Someone was like, are you okay? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Am I okay? Um, So, yeah, it was very, um, very (laughs) nerve-wracking experience, but very fun. So it was cool.
0: Cool. Well, you say about, you know, coming back bigger and better next year. It's 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 only your first time doing it. I mean, Cam and I have been using that excuse for three years. <laughs> uh, and it's not really helped us at all. So I, I think, don't worry about that. You'll, you did amazing from what I've been told, what I've heard. And I think it will be even bigger and better next year. I'm looking forward to seeing what you do. I'm glad someone's out there sort of flying the flag for independent podcasts. Because much like Verbal Diorama, much like Spy Hearts, W-rated... Is Paul Dano okay? All the ones I just mentioned, we are all yeah. self-funded podcasts just talking about films that we love or sometimes yeah. hate.
2: Yeah. yeah, and that's the thing, you know, it, it's the, the atmosphere there was so supportive, like everyone was supporting each other, everyone was cheering each other, and it, it was kind of a bit of a case of it didn't matter if you were a winner or you weren't, you know, it was just everyone was just kind Mm. of there for each other. And that's the podcast community in general, isn't it? Let's be honest, everyone in the indie podcast community is there for each other, supports each other, lifts each other up. And it was just wonderful to see that in real life. Um, But in the meantime, Verbal Diorama continues. uh, And it's just like, trying to balance everything this year has been interesting. Um, But yeah, I mean, you guys know with a weekly podcast i mean obviously you guys sometimes do more often than one week don't you so um but
3: (laughs) i see
1: cam shaking (laughs) frustration and pain but you (laughs) slowly withering into my chair
2: you you know what it's like you know it's it's sometimes relentless um just as a podcast i'm
1: like the alien in cocoon now (laughs) just like laying in the bathtub
2: (laughs) so so yeah verbal diorama continues all of that continues and um, hopefully I won't go mad at any point. <laughs> that would be nice.
3: <laughs> well, we pray
0: that you don't and we hope that you don't. And uh, as I said, I'm glad someone's out flying that flag. But uh, I think we need to pivot now into the film that we're celebrating this 150th review with, this milestone. We thought we'd pick one that you've all been asking for
1: for such a long time now. Cam, what have we got? Yes, we are looking at 1994's Leon the Professional, or sometimes also just known as The Professional. It's directed by Luc Besson. A lot to discuss with
0: this film. I'm excited to sort of peel back the layers. Uh, There's a lot of them. But I suppose I just want to get a quick feel of where everyone is with this film. I had seen it many moons ago, not really paid much attention to it and revisited it for the podcast em is this your first time viewing leon
2: no similar to you scott i saw this a long time ago and i didn't really pay much attention to it i think it was just like an ex-boyfriend was like oh my god you gotta watch this movie and so i was like yeah okay whatever (laughs) uh and i don't think i paid much attention to it because it felt like it was the first time i was watching it but i know that i have seen this before um but maybe it's i don't know watching it with a bit of age and a bit of experience, it's almost like watching it with fresh eyes. Um, mm. And um, yeah, there, there's there's a, a lot to this movie. Um, <laughs> just a, a, a mixed bag of emotions, shall we say, on this movie in particular. Mm. Um, it's.
0: It, I think I, I know what you're getting at and I, and I know what you're sort of feeling there. And I think we'll, we'll have to take it apart in a little bit. It's there's, there's so much under the surface of this that you could get lost in. And I feel like you could probably write a book about this film. If someone already has, let me know. Sure. Although, isn't that what you're working on right now is the Book of Leon? Of course, the Book of uh, book of Leon. Um, it's uh, coming to one self-published website. That's <laughs> all that's ever going to put this out. Leonbook.org. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a really bad reply to that, but I'm not going to use it. <laughs> Oh, um, but Cam, what about you? You're the man who's seen every single film ever made. What's your initial
1: take to lay on? Yeah, so I didn't see this movie in theaters. Uh, I would have been probably a little too young to get in, although I was close. I was on the line. And um, I remember talking to a friend. I was so into action movies in this era. So like anything Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Van Damme, Seagal, anything like that. And I remember hanging out with a friend and him saying, you should watch The Professional. Because here we just knew it as The Professional. That's what it was released Mm -hmm. as. And so I rented it um, pretty soon after it hit video. And I recall liking it, but also I think I was a little put off at the time by just, well, first off, I liked my straightforward, you know, over-the-top action movies. Mm -hmm. And this one was quirky, it was unusual, and I don't think it quite matched what, you know, 14-year-old Cam was looking for. Um, But I did enjoy it. It wasn't one, though, that I came back to. I feel like my relationship with this movie has more to do with the years that followed, where I began to, you know, when I got towards college and university and stuff like that, I would listen to a lot of film podcasts that began to spring up around 2006, 2007, And a lot of them would constantly reference this movie as, like, one of the all-time great action movies of the 90s. And I would kind of be like, huh, is it? Like, I didn't really – I never went back to it. And really the only kind of element of the movie that carried with me over the years was that kind of discourse around the film and also the um, (laughs) Gary Oldman screaming everyone. (laughs) Yeah.
2: It is pretty
1: iconic, isn't it? <laughs> it's a meme, yeah. right? Like it's yeah. such a well-known
0: kind of meme, yeah. It's interesting. There's lots of these films that people reference online, but there's few that have like the pop culture penetration of something like this, especially that everyone meme. There's a couple of other scenes in the film as well that have like GIFs that are constantly being used on on Twitter or wherever you're using GIFs.
1: So it it, it has stayed around for a very long time. Yeah, like I remember in the earlier days of movie message boards, you know, once they enabled image Uh, posting people would post Mm. that Gary Oldman screaming everyone you know whether it was a still image or a gif like you would see it over and over again and so that really became kind of the legacy of this film up until recent Mm. days when you and I have watched it a couple times for the show yeah and and
0: to be fair you must have been quite blown away by the change of having images on a a message board and just being on a message board and even being on a computer cam because of course you were used to talking to about films through Semaphore originally hmm
1: uh, and smoke signals before that. That's right. That is very accurate. It was very like um, slow, deliberate conversation in those days. But uh, mm. yes, I treasure it nonetheless. You do, you do. And if you have never seen Lay on the Professional,
0: the Professional Lay on, whatever you'd like to call it, here is your synopsis. Lay on the Professional. If you want a job done well, hire a professional. Lay on. The top hitman in New York has earned a rep as an effective cleaner. But when his next-door neighbours are wiped out by a loose cannon DEA agent, he becomes the unwilling custodian of a 12-year-old named Matilda. Before long, Matilda's thoughts turn to revenge and she considers following in Leon's footsteps. Clive ends abruptly. But that's it. (laughs) That's the plot, everyone. There you go. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah... it's funny that it's had all this sort of long standing in the film community, and it's weird a second a long to speak about it. But it's a there's a big reason why I think, and we'll get to why I've maybe had to wait a little while to talk about it. But Cam, I'm interested to know how we got this film in the first
1: place. Right. So this is you know a project by Luc Besson, who's a writer, director, producer out of France and began his career in 1981 with a short called the penultimate and then just rolled into films he did a movie called the last battle in 1983 Uh, he did a film called the big blue in 88 which was kind of a crossover sensation about um, swimmers or maybe it was free divers one or the other it involved water and people diving into it or out of it i can't remember (laughs) Someone was getting wet at some point. <laughs> That's right. The big blue was water. I can tell you that. I haven't seen the movie. I have heard it's good, though. And it was 1990s Lefem Nikita, though, that really put him on the map. And we haven't covered that film on the show yet. We will at some point in the future. I haven't even seen it. But I knew the name Lafemme Nikita growing up. Like That was a movie that had, mm-hmm. had crossover appeal and then, of course, was remade as Point of No Return with Bridget Fonda in the early 90s as well. I think I'd also seen
0: a. I don't know if the TV show is connected to the movie, but I've definitely seen a TV show called Nikita.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think there's been a couple of TV shows.
1: Yeah, I think they did a second series. I think
0: I remember it getting played a lot here on British television, the the Nikita show. So I'm I'm guessing MRI have seen it at some point on television. But yeah, I don't I don't recall the film.
1: And so when it came to this film, this was his follow up to La Femme Nikita because he did take a break, um, but he did do a, a TV special called Atlantis in 1991, so that was kind of the previous project before this. And um, this movie was inspired by a character from La Femme Nikita named Victor the Cleaner, who was played by Jean Renault. and the working title of the film was The Cleaner, and so that was definitely something that had stuck with him since making La Femme Nikita. It was just an interest in this kind of smaller supporting character and kind of what the world could be around this individual. There was also a secondary inspiration of this film, which was his relationship with his then-wife, Maywin Labesco, who shows up at the start of this movie playing a sex worker, um, who he met when she was 12, and she was dating a friend of his. And they began dating when she was 15, and uh, I believe he was 29 when she was 12, so I guess he would have been 33 when she was 15. Um...
2: It's just like the the most problematic thing um you know when you're talking about the power dynamics uh yeah just so problematic is probably the really nice way of putting it yeah it, it's gross
0: <laughs> it, yeah, yeah i i think it it is it's it has a large case yeah. of the ick yeah, yeah. is what like people like to say these days it's it's a rather disgusting use of power, an abuse of power, I should say, on his part. And I, uh, there's a lot of uncomfortable things about this film. Uh, that this is the sort of key point where once you realise this bit of information, the film opens up and it can get quite dark. And we're going to try our best to talk about these things in this discussion, but also try and appraise the film from a filmmaking perspective too. But I remember we got a lot of flack going back, Cam, a little bit. To our Remo Williams discussion many moons ago Oh yeah Because we took that film to task For casting Mm. a white actor uh, In yellow face, as it were And him being a main character And unapologetically so Having this sort of casting And I'm not going to back down From pointing out some of the Very disgusting parts of the history Of this film And if that's something you're not going to Listen to or enjoy, by all means Take a seat, but I feel like you can't appraise this film without tackling these issues, and I'm glad we're doing
1: it. I mean, the fact of the matter is, any of the films made by Luc Besson are very much conjured up by his own specific tastes and influences and personal vision, and you know, he's not a journeyman filmmaker, he doesn't just sign Mm -hmm. on to make whatever the studio wants, he very much comes up with his own material, and so. When you are talking about a movie like this, the biography plays a big role. And there's even documentaries out there, you can find them on YouTube, about the making of The Professional with Mei Wen talking about how their relationship was the inspiration for this film.
0: Yeah, it's not like we're reading it a certain way. No, this is the official history of the film.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if if the person who was involved, or one of the two people who was involved, has said this on the record, then that's it. you've got to take what she says as being the actual genuine truth behind the making of this movie. And, you know, you kind of put the parallels up. So, you know, the fact that Mae Wen was 12 when they met, um, you know, like Cam said, 15 when they started dating. Uh, I believe she had his child when she was 16. And you kind of hold a mirror up at that and you look at the very clear and overt sexualization of the character of Matilda in Leon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can't not have a, a basis of comparison. You can't. Even if Mae Wen mm-hmm. had not come out and, and confirmed this, there's clearly there's clearly something there. And and I think I think you're right, Scott. I think, you know, as as a film podcast, I think you kind of have every right to kind of talk about things like this, because I think it is important. You can't just wipe over the history of the movie if it's there in black and white out there in the world. Um, and I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just a very, very difficult thing to talk about, I think is where where maybe I'm going to struggle a little bit in, in that regard, because I think it is a very sensitive Thing, And I'm not talking about, you know, Lupus on, but, you know, when we're mm. talking about someone like Mae Wen and what she must have had to go through. Yeah, it's very, very difficult subject, I think. But I I, th- I definitely think it needs to be talked about. You can't skirt over the the facts that are out there on the record about this movie.
0: And undisputed by those involved like that that this is the record as it were and one thing i i i find interesting and we're kind of getting into talking about the film and but we'll we'll get it back on the rails in a second folks don't worry but i think it's important to talk about now because cam's brought it up is i i have a feeling that lay on the professional would be a footnote in the history of cinema if it also wasn't a very good film yep yeah And this is where this sort of um, friction is happening and you'll probably hear it throughout this discussion because I imagine we would probably just put this film to one side now as as film viewers if it was just a piece of action, trashy 90s film. But a lot of what we're going to talk about is some amazing filmmaking from Luke and the team. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we want to try and get into this discussion and, and pick it apart, but also highlight the problematic elements that are here.
1: Well, so often we talk about movies of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s that are classic films that have elements that you go, like, oh, like that is kind of difficult to grapple with. And we have those conversations. You know, look at, I don't know, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do with the Mickey Rooney character? Like, that movie exists and there are such masterful elements about it, but you have to have the conversation about the Mickey Rooney part of it. And I feel like Leon is a more modern example, but it's a movie where there is an element of it that is difficult Mm -hmm. even though the movie around it is often incredible
2: yeah it's very much a case of art imitating life in a way isn't it
1: Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: uh, but yeah i completely agree with both of you uh this is a terrific movie in itself um and i am genuinely looking forward to discuss the terrific aspects of this movie with you both because i think scott you're absolutely right if this was just another crappy action movie we wouldn't even be here talking about it because it would just be well you know it's crappy and it's problematic let's just yeah let's just ignore that but this is great Mm -hmm. like there's some truly wonderful things about this movie and it's just in a way it's such a shame that it's also tarnished like this by Luc Besson himself Mm. Um, and obviously I believe there have been other sexual abuse allegations that have come up about him in recent years as well that obviously can't be um, ignored. Um, But yeah, this, this is one of those movies that will stand the test of time just purely based on the genuinely terrific filmmaking that we have here.
1: Yeah, and also just its spot as being the launching point for one of the Greatest actresses of her generation. Yeah. That is also always going to be there, of course, with Natalie Portman. So yeah, um, we'll come back to discussions, I'm sure, on elements of this as we go forward. But I'll just kind of continue on with the behind the scenes. So this movie was actually kind of not going to happen. It was something that kind of came about because Luc Besson wanted to make the fifth element. That was going to be his big project that would have landed around this time period. But because of Bruce Willis's schedule... They had to fill time because Bruce Willis was shooting something else at the time. It might have been Die Hard uh, with a vengeance. I'm not exactly sure. But while they were killing time waiting for Bruce Willis, he wrote the script in 30 days for this movie and they shot it in 90. So this was a very quick production. This was like four months to get the professional done.
0: Well, and it's interesting you mentioned um, The Fifth Element, Cam, because we haven't announced, but we do have an interview this week for Leon. We are joined by Sylvie Landra, who worked as the editor on Leon, but also on The Fifth Element and a bunch of other films, uh, also from Luc Besson and other films like Catwoman, things like that. There's a lot to talk about there, and uh, she gives us a great behind the scenes on putting together Leon. Both cuts as well.
1: Mm, yeah, we get into that and why there are two different cuts of the film. And so, Jean Renault was always Luc Besson's number one pick for the lead of this movie. But when you are dealing with financiers, they don't necessarily hear the name Jean Renault and think dollar signs. So, there were a few other actors that were kind of floated as potentials around that time. Actors like Mel Gibson, Robert De Niro, Keanu Reeves, who were, of course, big stars of that time period. And some of them still are to this day. And so it makes sense that those names would float around, but I can also understand why when you see the finished product that Luke Besson got what he wanted.
0: Yeah, I think he also had that sort of built-in history with uh Le Femme Nikita as well, and having that character fleshed out a little bit in that, sort of in that film already, he knew what he wanted when it came to the character of Leon.
1: Yeah, and he actually rejected Natalie Portman initially for being too young for the role, and was actually looking more towards Liv Tyler or Christina Ricci, and ended up going back to Portman because she really wowed them when she did a second audition, and that was what locked the role for her.
0: Uh, I'm just going to sort of uh, ramble on for a second whilst I Google how old Liv Tyler was at this point.
1: I
2: think Liv Tyler's about three years older than Natalie Portman.
0: 77 she was born.
2: Yeah, Natalie Portman was 81. Okay. And I believe so is, well, Christina Ricci I think is 80 so one year older yeah so there's not really much in it between natalie portman and christina ricci
0: no no it's not so certainly he was going for a
1: certain look let's put it that way definitely yes and natalie portman and her parents had some of the scripts more extreme beats cut completely Mm -hmm. like i'm not talking about stuff in the extended cut of leon there was elements that were just completely taken out like there was a shower scene that was cut They also um, limited the number of cigarettes to five, and they demanded that there was a point where she would quit smoking in the movie. And the film also initially ended—and this had nothing to do with Portman and her parents—but initially the movie had a much darker ending with Matilda, where Leon is shot down by Gary Oldman at the end, the way we see in the movie. Mm -hmm. Leon does not survive that gunshot, and Matilda is the one that actually goes in and does the ring trick and blows herself up with Gary Oldman— as a final act of, you know, vengeance for killing her family.
3: Oh,
0: okay. No, I, I think that was a good note to change that. Uh, I don't think that really... I, I mean, it's not meant to have a great ending. Yeah. But it does have somewhat of a nice ending, I suppose. At least Matilda's go, moving on with her life and she has the plant and stuff yeah. like that, I guess. There
1: is a glimmer of hope yeah. versus a very, very bleak ending, yeah.
2: It, I think that was needed as well because literally when everyone else is pretty much apart from the mafia boss um mm. everyone else dies so mm-hmm. um yeah i think we needed matilda to live so i'm actually glad that they changed that
1: yeah me too and that changed during the script stages um uh, before they got to shooting um and <laughs> speaking of the script gary oldman improved mo- much of his dialogue for this movie you don't say i know right <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the whole bring me everyone bit was actually done as a joke on set and it was Gary Oldman just <laughs> swinging for the fences just to make people laugh. And uh, it ended up being the most iconic moment of the movie.
0: It, yeah, the bring me everyone line is great. And I yeah, I quoted it in the intro, but like the, the the Gary Oldman bit that he does a couple of times in this film that never fails to get a chuckle out of me is when he takes these pills, yes, and like and clicks them and like does it like it's like he breaks his back as he clicks yeah. it. It's It makes him feel like he's like a like a snake or a lizard. It's very ugh, it's
1: gross. It makes you feel <laughs> gross. It's such a weird choice, but it works. He feels reptilian in this movie. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, <laughs> We'll talk, I'm sure, a lot more about Gary Oldman in the minutes to come. <laughs> so this mm. movie was released as The Professional in North America, and it was cut down to 110 minutes for the North American version. They did test screenings, basically, and audiences were not having some of the more um, suggestive material uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about going forward. But Posing it politely. Yeah, yeah, there's like a bedroom scene that audiences were just like laughing through in discomfort. Mm. And so they said, okay, cut that. It's not flying. And so when you watch the two versions, it's interesting to me that both of them still completely work, but one of them is more kind of plot action-driven versus one that is a little more relationship character-driven which is which in your opinion the longer one is the more relationship character-driven version
0: because you get to spend more time with them together basically
1: yeah whereas it feels in the north american version much more punctuated by action scenes well just throwing it out there i've seen
0: both over the years and watched both in preparation for this and which version do you recall watching
2: so i think over here in the uk it's basically designated as the theatrical version and the director's cut.
3: Mm-hmm. Yep, um, that sounds right.
2: So I've got the Blu-ray, which I actually bought in preparation for this, because I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll have Leon on Blu-ray. Yeah, it's a good, good movie. I'll keep it. Um, yeah. And it actually had both on there. And I chose the theatrical, oh. but only because I haven't seen the director's cut, or the quote-unquote director's cut, but I know of the content Mm -hmm. and I personally didn't knowing what I know about the scenes that they did cut, I didn't feel comfortable going into that relationship in more detail. So I can't comment on the actual content itself to say that I've seen it because I haven't. I'm just kind of going off of hearsay as to the, the content of that. But because the relationship that's in the theatrical cut between Leon and Matilda is already kind of skirting a line Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: me personally I was like I don't think I can I don't think I can deal with more suggestion shall we say on the part of that relationship um so I chose to just stick with the theatrical um maybe I should have just done it but yeah it was just it was just a level of comfort for me I think
0: I don't I don't think necessarily you're missing anything. I mean, I I know what it is practically you're missing in terms of seeing both types of the film, both versions, but like I don't in terms of the storytelling of getting the relationship down between the two of them, I don't think really you're missing much apart from maybe a little bit of colouring in just to give you a little bit more of the flavour of what's going on. But you you get the tone, you get what they're going for in both versions.
1: Yeah. The only thing that I semi missed was just more scenes of him training her in the world of cleaning. Yeah. They have like a little bit more of that in the extended cut. That stuff, I think, is kind of valuable, but in terms of the relationship material, I, I was fine leaving it on the uh, cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. And we do dive into that in the interview with the editor later in this week, uh, uh,
0: really why those choices were made and who made those choices in terms of the cuts. So if you want to know why there are differences and what differences there are, check it out on Friday. Definitely.
2: Well, I will be checking it out because I want to know now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah that's cool
0: and
1: so this movie had a budget of 16 million dollars domestically it did 19.3 international 26 for a worldwide total of 45.3 so this was not like a huge runaway hit by any stretch of the imagination it was much more of a word of mouth movie once home video came into play i
0: was literally gonna say this feels exactly like the sort of thing you rent from blockbuster or something like that because your friends had seen it or something on their recommendation you tell your friends to rent it and we'd all pick it up
1: Yeah, and it was also kind of, in North America, one of those, like, just outside of kind of the standard action movies. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of action fans kind of discovered it in the way they were also finding John Woo films on video cassette and DVD over the years, too. And Betamax, of course. Betamax, especially. And I do remember when action fans started getting their hands on the extended cut and talking about, like, oh, did you know there's, like, kind of a more sprawling version of this story? And for a long time, that was considered the kind of the more interesting or the better cut. I don't know where I come down. I think both of them work. But for a mm. while, there was novelty to that extended version. No, I would agree. I think both do work. Mm-hmm. And so this movie landed at number 32 for the year at the worldwide box office between D2, The Mighty Ducks, and Time Cop. Do yeah, you I-, I think I recall liking Time Cop. Me too. I think, yeah, I've never seen D two. I enjoyed it. That's a solid <laughs> three. There is a uh, three movie marathon for those at home who want to relive nineteen ninety four. It couldn't feel more nineties. <laughs> That's right. And so the top three for the year: number one is The Lion King, number two was Forrest Gump, and number three was True Lies. And mm. it's notable this movie is ranked at the time of recording as number thirty eight of the all time greatest films on IMDb thanks to voters wow okay number 38 all time
3: that's pretty
2: impressive
1: yeah now when we did the interview because we already recorded the interview um at the time of doing that interview it was number 36 and it has fallen to 38 over the last month or so oppenheimer scott oppenheimer bumped it down yeah
0: oh yeah uh, is it barbie and oppenheimer have come out and that's it it's changed or maybe it's
1: the Kills of the flower moon uh, yeah, I don't really know. I just spotted Oppenheimer, so that's yeah. one of them, but, uh, I mean, there's a little bit of flux. This is a movie that does kind of occupy the 30s in the all-time greatest on IMDb. I mean, there's still top 40 of all
0: time, of all of film ever. That's a, a prestigious place to be, 36 or
1: 38. It's beating Casablanca. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, IMDb. <laughs> Who's voting for this? I have no idea. I have no <laughs> idea at all. I just thought it was interesting. Now, yeah. originally, Luc Besson wanted to make a sequel to this movie, focusing on the Portman character. But they decided to wait until she was older. And they wanted to make it around the year 2000 with Olivier Megaton. Olivier Megaton, who, of course, directed Taken 2 and 3. I thought I was doing that name. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but plans were put on hold because the Leon Wrights got very messy. And uh, so it never ended up happening. But a lot of the ideas for that Matilda film, which I'm going to assume probably would have been called Matilda. Matilda, the professional. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, a lot of the ideas and concepts for that project became the Zoe Saldana film Columbiana. I have never seen that film, so I actually can't comment. Nor nor have I.
2: No, I've heard of it. Um, yeah. But I, I, I didn't realize it was based on Matilda. Um, because I, well, before we started recording, I I said that uh, I, regardless of all of the discussions we're going to have about the problematic aspects of this movie, the character of Matilda is a standout character,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I would actually like to see what did Matilda do next. What happened after she left that school? Did she? What happened with the the crime boss? Because I found it quite fascinating that it's almost like a cyclical thing that Leon was kind of stuck in this cyclical nature of cleaning and this crime boss was keeping his money and obviously he didn't know any better because you know he's not really the sharpest tool in the box shall we say (laughs) but he's good at cleaning yeah um but it's interesting to me that the movie finishes with Matilda in exactly the same situation yeah that Leon was in with this crime boss so I would have genuinely been very interested to see and obviously i would have loved to have seen natalie portman come back
3: mm-hmm. for something
2: like that mm-hmm. um but yeah obviously we're never gonna know what happened to matilda and uh did she well i suppose she did get her ultimate revenge but maybe there was more revenge out there for her maybe there was something else out there for her but maybe the, hopefully the plant survived at the very least well,
0: it's interesting because I I wrote down some ideas of what I would have done with a sequel. Uh maybe we can talk about that a bit later. Uh
1: it's I, I it is all still to play for. I think there is still a world where we could still get a sequel. I don't know because I think the only way you get a sequel is if Luke Besson makes it and I don't know that Natalie Portman is signing up to be in that movie. Oh, is it a rights thing like so, it, you couldn't just buy the rights for it and do it? Uh I I mean I don't honestly don't know where the rights are but like no. I I just think like if you ask me about the movie, you know, The Professional, it's very much a Luc Besson film. Mm. So, like, do I want to see, like, some off-the-shelf filmmaker make a sequel to Leon? No. But I also no. don't really feel comfortable having Luc Besson make the sequel to to it either. So, I, I don't know. I just think it's no. kind of a project yeah. that's maybe best left to the imagination.
2: Maybe. And also, I kind of feel like Luc Besson seems to have quite a lot of clout mm-hmm. uh, when it, you know, as a director... Um, you know, he can get pretty much anything made. Um, I mean, if you look at his filmography, you know, he's he's done this. He's done uh, The Fifth Element. Uh believe he was like, was he the writer of Taken or something like that as well? Um, producer, yeah. Pro- sorry, producer. Um,
1: and I think he did co-write, actually. I think you're right, yeah.
2: Okay. And then, uh, so he did like Lucy, which was a very kind of similar thing with a you know you quote unquote strong female protagonist with scarlett johansson mm-hmm. and uh, then he did valerian and the city of a thousand planets which i kind of feel like that is the only luke besson could get away with doing something that big and extravagant and expensive um and for it to not do well
1: <laughs> yep and that's a stay tuned we will be covering that on the show at some point
2: mm. yeah thoughts on uh valerian interesting um But yeah, so I feel like he's got a lot of industry clout. Mm -hmm. And based on that fact, I don't think he would let anyone else do it. I think he would be very steadfast in his, this is my thing, I want to do this. And I think the industry would just, well, I think they probably would say yes to him because, you know, men in Hollywood do tend to get lots of yeses. So, um, yeah, I... I would like to see it, but I, I I, also kind of don't want to see it, uh, you know, in, in that situation. I,
0: but Yeah. I feel like you're opening a can of worms on, if you ever did hit the green light on that film. Uh, I feel like it's, yeah, probably just too problematic to, to dive into. And I don't think Portman would probably do it, especially if Besson was involved.
1: Yeah. And I've got a quote. We'll just end the behind the scenes with a quote from Natalie Portman. From It was during the 2018 Women's March. She had an interview with Hollywood Reporter. And they brought up this film, and she said, It's a movie that's still beloved, and people come up to me about it more than almost anything I've ever made. And it gave me my career, but it is definitely, when you watch it now, it definitely has some cringy, to say the least, aspects to it. So yes, it's complicated for me. That was a very elegant way of putting it, Natalie. Yeah.
3: Yes. Mm -hmm. Well played. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, okay, it's time. Let's talk about Leon. We have to get some milk in our system, we need to up our calcium, <laughs> get down to business with The Professional So Emma, I'm throwing it to you We've already kind of all spoken a little bit about how we feel about this film, but more from like an overall thoughts on it, what do you think about Leon The Professional?
2: So, I really like this movie I feel like I can't say with all honesty that I love this movie just based on the, thing, the issues that we've already spoken about but I really, really like it. Um, I think Natalie Portman is electric. I think that scene where her family have been killed and she just like tunnel vision, walks oh. past, walks to Leon's apartment and you can just see her through the peephole, tears streaming down her face. Please let me in. I'm just like, it is not surprising to me that she would go ahead and become like Cam said, one of the most acclaimed actors of her generation, because this is the movie that, well, this is the movie, this was her debut. Um, And it's quite fascinating to me, because obviously, I know you guys have probably been doing this too, but I've been listening to the audiobook this week of Britney Spears' memoir.
3: Mm, Of course. and
2: uh, It is relevant. (laughs) I can't put it down. Uh, Of of course. Everyone's uh, reading Britney Spears' memoir. But one of the things that struck me about Uh, listening to Britney Spears' memoir was that she met Natalie Portman when they were both understudying for a a particular role, a particular theatre role. And um, it's really weird to think that Natalie Portman was an understudy alongside Britney Spears for, I can't remember what the role was, it was some some kind of theatre role in New York. Hmm. And now Natalie Portman is genuinely one of the, greatest acts of her generation and britney spears is one of the greatest pop stars of her generation and they were both understudies uh which is fascinating to me um that's just a just a by note read britney spears uh, memoir it's very good <laughs> um but...
0: turn this off <laughs> Plug... and pick up britney spears's memoir that's get great. it now <laughs> um,
2: but genuinely i feel like they found an absolute treasure with natalie Portman and um but then you kind of look at her performance and the the very overt sexualization of Matilda is sometimes kind of throwaway but sometimes there's obviously like a very clear and obvious intent that she is sexualized in that way um you know it's like Little things like the fact she dresses up as Marilyn Monroe, she dresses up as Madonna, and it's supposed to be a very kind of fun scene where she's, you know, pretending to be someone else and, like, trying to get Leon to um, guess who these people are. And in in many ways, you know, it is very childlike. But then in other ways, there's there's just something there about maybe the way that she's being directed.
3: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah.
2: You know, especially with the Marilyn Monroe Mm -hmm. section where she's almost like very pouty. And I mean, let's be honest, Natalie Portman is stunningly beautiful. You know, this is this is a beautiful 11 slash 12 year old. But I feel like they are very much making the most of that kind of highlighting her beauty. And. In many ways, it's very kind of subtle, but in many ways, it's also a little bit disturbing to like revisit
3: this.
0: The, this is the thing I, I found is it, once you start looking for it, and even not particularly looking for it, just being conscious of the problems and the sort of reasons that led to her casting and things like that, you can't unsee it a lot of the time. The most egregious of those shots for me. Is, I don't know if this is in the um, theatrical cut but definitely in the director's cut it's when Matilda and Leon stay in the same bed overnight right and she gets up in the morning and goes to make breakfast or something like that and the camera just holds on her rear end it is in the theatrical as well right and it, it's an extended her cut of her walking around the room but it's focused on her backside now why from a filmmaking perspective, is this important? Why are you highlighting this? Your camera is your audience's viewpoint into the story. Why is that the thing you're highlighting? We all know why, but
1: that's like just so in your face that I, it, it bumps me every time. Well, I think I can like maybe underline a criticism of the direction here. And a lot of this episode, we're going to talk about how incredible Luc Besson is at directing action, for example, mm-hmm. or world building, or things like that. But... I can follow the kind of the logical train of thought of like a young, you know, this character who's 11 or 12 trying to kind of act older for her age and maybe trying to even like give off this kind of overt sexuality. Maybe she saw in her mother a character because we are the stepmother, for example, who we see at the start of the film. Maybe there's an element of that, that she's trying to, you know, rise up to like Leon's level and pretend to be an adult through things she's seen, whether it is even just Madonna or Marilyn Monroe. That makes sense to me on a logical level. However, there is very heavy male gaze, film director style on this movie. And so whether the character is experiencing that is separate to the way he is shooting her. And the camera is leering at her in the film. That's the difference. I think there's a way you can depict it where it's almost like documentary-like. Of you are seeing someone act older than they are. Versus... Like as you mentioned, Scott, that shot of the next morning when she's getting out of bed, for example, or there's a few others where the camera is just very, very focused in on her in a way that's like, what do you want us to take from this shot?
0: Yeah, and it's it's, it's that's exactly why I, I get where you're coming from in that. I mean, I, it, it it will it will color our discussion. Um, but it sounds like overall that you still think that there is a great film here.
2: Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to kind of keep. I feel like this is going to be the sort of discussion where we are going to be saying, well, yeah, the film's great, but yeah. then this happens. Yeah. Um, but because that, unfortunately, is the legacy of this movie. is The movie is great. There's some fantastic performances in this movie. You know, Jean Reno is truly fantastic in this movie. Natalie Portman. Uh, Gary Oldman, as we've said, he's a meme now because of this movie. <laughs> there is, there aren't any. And also, uh, just wanted to point out as well, I completely forgot she was in it. Ellen Green is in this movie from Little Shop of Horrors. And I was like, is that Ellen Green? Because I love Little Shop of Horrors. I was like, oh my God, it is Ellen Green. She plays the stepmother. Yeah. Um, and that was a nice surprise for me to see Ellen Green in this movie. Oh my God, movie. of course. Yeah. Yeah, Audrey. It's
3: her. Yeah. Um, Good grief. Yeah.
2: It's, but the thing is, is it does kind of look like her, but the hair is different. Mm. So I was a little bit like, it kind of looks like her. And then, I, yeah, it, it's definitely her. Um, And, you know, just following on from what Cam said earlier, you know, I completely understand the point of view of the fact that this movie is essentially, you know, an adult with a child's mindset and then a child with an adult's mindset. And that's kind of the idea of this pairing, is you've got a... a a grown man who literally knows nothing other than killing people. Mm-hmm. Doesn't even know how to read. And then you've got this wiser-than-her-years child who's been through all of this crap, smokes, you know, has this dysfunctional family who... And obviously a, a brother who she adores. um, And they all get murdered. And, you know, in her mind, all she can think about is revenge. But she's ultimately still a child. And, um, but, you know, just thing, things that I love about this movie, you know, I love kind of the grimy cinematography of this movie. Like it looks, this place looks genuinely grimy and dirty. Like the the way that they kind of portray this um, underworld kind of of like the corrupt DEA. It, it is DEA, isn't it? The, yeah. I don't know what that stands for. Drug enforcement something. Um, Agency. Yeah. And then you know the little Italy crime syndicates, and you know it, it does feel like a very kind of grimy, dirty sort of low life place. It does. It comes across as not a particularly nice place to live. It's kind of juxtaposed with this private school that the the father was sending Matilda to, because it makes it clear that he's paying for Matilda to go to this school, and it's obviously seems to be a bit more um slightly different kind of in social standing perhaps this particular school to the environment that matilda uh, has grown up in um and you know i really like the idea that this film feels very french mm-hmm. you know in its in its tone in its score the the music is very french um you know that w- we're told that leon is italian but Jean Renaud is clearly very French. (laughs) There's there's no mistaking. And he's like, yeah, I'm Italian. It's like, no, mate, you're clearly very French. Like, you've got a French accent. Uh, But okay, he's Italian. Whatever, let's... uh... You know, they're they're all countries in Europe, so clearly they're all the same. Um, But yeah, it it feels very reminiscent of, like, French cinema, French new wave cinema. You know, that sort of... It just feels very French, but it also feels very international as well. And I think that's probably where the appeal comes from, you know, from like uh, the American audiences, from uh, worldwide audiences, European audiences. It kind of deals with a lot of very different demographics. Um, And, you know, we've obviously mentioned this is an action movie, but it doesn't feel like a 90s action movie. And I think that's why it stands out, because. When you think of 90s action, you do think of movies like True Lies, you know, big explosions. Um, obviously, this movie does have those, but not not big cinematic explosions. It's got guns, but it's not... It's, it feels different. And I can't put my finger on exactly why that is, whether that is something to do with Luc Besson's direction, uh, which it probably is. But this is an action movie without being your very typical Hollywood 90s action blockbuster. And to be honest, that is probably one of the reasons why it does still stand out, because it feels very different. It feels very, like I say, very European. Um, and I really like that about this movie. And I, I love the fact it sounds very French, because mm. it's very rare that many people who go to the cinema will go and watch a French movie. But this, this kind of skirts the line between kind of American and French uh, and Italian, obviously, because, you know, you're <laughs> But, um, we're all Italian. But, you know, here.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> so Italian. I love pasta uh, and pizza. <laughs> uh, therefore I am Italian. Um, but you know, it's like it, it skirts so many different lines, you know, when, when we're talking about cinema, when we're talking about obviously the characterizations and stuff like that. And then it's like, well, you know, it also skirts lines between being inappropriate and misguided to being intriguing and mesmerizing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's a, I walk away from this movie having a very kind of complicated relationship with it because it's like, I really enjoy it, but I also kind of don't. (laughs) It's like so, such complicated emotions with this movie.
0: It's like you don't want to give yourself over to it, knowing what you know. Like you kind of, you're you're on guard whilst watching it a little bit. Yeah, it's, It's interesting you talk about it sort of feeling different to other films around the time. I always compare this to ronin when i talk about it because it again it's a 90s action film that isn't like every other action film that's coming out around about that time it has a different vibe to it i i put it down a lot to the cinematography in this film i think it's a very visually dynamic and interesting film but I, i'll get to my thoughts in a second cam i want to hear from you
1: 2023 what do you think would lay on the professional i am just completely bowled over at um uh, the world building and style of this movie And M mentions, yeah, new French, you know, filmmaking. I kept thinking of Amelie and just the ability to create this whole little world that feels like whimsical in a lot of ways. It's Mm -hmm. interesting. This movie, the exteriors were all shot in New York, but the interiors were all shot in France. So it kind of is, you know, standing on that line between the two, you know, countries, which is interesting. Mm. And everything about it has... The sort of element that I actually really liked in the movie Hannah, where there is kind of this like whimsical fairy tale aspect to this movie, not in the same way as Hannah, which is a little more overt, where you have mm. actual allusions to witches and wolves and all that sort of thing. This movie doesn't have that. But whether it's Eric Sarah's kind of like whimsical, jaunty score that kicks in every now and again, especially with the Matilda theme that he plays when you first meet her, um, there is this element of almost like a storybook uh you know film being told here mm-hmm. and i am just so pulled into the world of it and the performances it's that trifecta of jean renault gary oldman and natalie portman the three of them together just bring this movie to life and they are you know having this backdrop of as M said these kind of like moldy apartments and things like that nothing looks nice and yet it looks beautiful I don't understand how you make that work. I really don't. There is a style to that, a cinematography, a production design element that all working in unison just give so much life to this movie. And the actors, you are just locked in on every single moment they have. And I'm sure we'll talk about more about performances going forward. But the other thing I wanted to really note was that I was trying to figure out, like, why does the action in this movie feel so different to the other action movies I was watching in the 90s? Or why does this movie stand out now? Why in 2023 are we thinking like, Leon, really interesting film that we need to, you know, kind of look at the action of. And I was noticing that a lot of it feels like a horror movie. A lot of the setups for the action in um, Leon are not your standard extended action sequence the way you would see in a Schwarzenegger film or a Stallone film. They are villains wandering around and leon popping out and there is like legit jump scares in this movie as leon like springs out of the darkness Mm -hmm. there's a point a point early in the movie where he's holding like a knife to a guy's throat and then just disappears into the dark all entirely stylistic if you were to see that same situation play out in real life it would look ridiculous (laughs) because shadows don't work that way but the movie plays with that throughout the course of the film it's not about like propulsive action sequences it's about these kind of like horror movie-like Leon leaping out and surprising people kind of moments. And I thought they were always effective, they were always interesting, and I couldn't help after watching this movie wondering if there was an element of this film that wandered into Batman Begins, where you see Batman on the docks in his first night out taking people down and just coming out of the shadows, and it's all just these individual action moments, but they're not part of a sequence.
0: It's it's entirely possible. It's it's interesting you highlight the sort of horror elements because I was I'm just looking at the IMDb splash page whilst you were talking and it, it was it's a clip of of Leon hanging on the ceiling whilst the SWAT team are in the building trying to get him and he's he's like hanging upside down basically like Batman taking people out and stuff like it, it's it's some crazy gun through going on here. He's clearly a master assassin, but it is different. It's offbeat. It's I I used in my notes I used the word heightened a lot of the time it, it, this whole world feels slightly heightened and i like that it actually takes its time with the action sequences and like it it, it dwells on it a little bit it, it's not just hmm. throwing death at you the whole time i appreciate that a lot of these sort of assassinations or shooting sequences are very deliberate and you see what what goes into it you see the swat team climbing the stairs slowly just to get to leon it's it's very like it it goes through the it goes through the sort of process of actually giving you the full action sequence instead of just countless drones yeah. turning up to get shot down. You you see that Leon is taking damage as he is fighting these people. He is being withered and by the end he has to, you know, blow himself up. It's it's wonderful stuff. And I'll I'll pivot that into just quickly my top line thoughts because I've kind of already said it and we've all kind of collectively said it. I want to love this film. I want to embrace it. I can't get away from the Luc besson sized elephant in the room. And I'll never be able to fully love this film for what is is shown. If I, I, I almost wish... I, I wonder if i feel the same way. I probably wouldn't if this film did had none of this backstory, had none of these problematic elements to it. I probably think it was a five-star film just straight away. I don't, I don't think it's any question to me. It is wonderful to look at. It never once uh, is sort of slow. There are no pacing elements, uh, problems in this film. I can watch it for two hours and not feel that sort of Gravity towards my phone. Mm. I don't feel that sort of pull to be distracted by or entertained by a second screen or something else in my house or whatever. This is a purely cinematic experience. Every time I watch it, I can sit there and enjoy what is being shown to me. Performances are fantastic. The action is fantastic. Cinematography is just on point. And even Michael's, Eric Sarah, not Michael Sarah, Eric Sarah. (laughs)
1: Michael Sarah's music.
0: Michael Sarah's (laughs) score to uh, lay on the professional. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: love it <laughs>
2: wow he's uh he's really come on hasn't he since super
1: bad oh boy it's the charlie brown theme from arrested <laughs> development
0: <laughs> wow uh poor michael sarah's been tied into this film too now his legacy has been ruined um i love it i absolutely love it except for that giant elephant and i don't think i'll ever get over that but yeah i, I but i think what i'm going to do to help us be positive for a little bit about this film. Is take us over to the likes section, and we'll just going to talk about things we like, and then maybe we'll sort of take it apart a bit more afterwards. So, em i I'm going to throw it to you. Something you really liked, and you want to talk about about Leon?
2: Oh, something that I haven't talked about already. Oh, I will tell you what, I do really like, um, the the character. You know, the kind uh, of say the what the character arcs mm-hmm. in this particular movie. Um, because I feel like a character like Leon could easily just be oh you know he's uh, a little bit of a simple character um and all he does is kill people but you know through obviously his dealings with matilda he grows as a character you know i mean this is a guy who was going to shoot a child in her sleep and we kind of go from that to him having like a genuine kind of fatherly affection for this child but also little things like throughout the movie you see him working out Mm. and there's just really throwaway stuff like oh he's just doing some sit-ups randomly he gets Matilda to do them because he's like you know you've got to keep fit and then at the end of the movie um like like you said Scott you've basically got him kind of coming down from the ceiling basically doing a reverse sit-up from the ceiling to kind of take these people out and it's just like I just feel like it's a really wonderful character progression for him because i think a character like that could very easily be very throwaway um like he's just there to kill people but you genuinely care for this character and the fact that he has kind of found this meaningful relationship uh yeah all of that side but you know a meaningful relationship for for him you know meaning to his life his life isn't just about killing anymore it's about protecting and nurturing this child um and i i really like that and i think that jean reno puts that across very well like i say i think he's terrific in this movie he is very childlike and i think it's sometimes very difficult for a grown actor a grown adult actor to portray someone who's very childlike and very innocent and when they're also a killer at the same time you know there's a very um There's a balance there because it's like, okay, he's childlike, but he's also a trained assassin. And, you know, you look at um, maybe other roles of uh, the actors have done that maybe have portrayed childlike um, people in film. And to me, this is genuinely up there as, as one of the best. You know, he's not like I say, he's not the sharpest tool in the box, but he knows how to use the tools that he has. And the fact that Matilda comes along and teaches him how to read and basically teaches him how to care. You know, I just I find that a very endearing part of the story. Um and, you know, I just I think that's wonderful. You know, Matilda too, you know, she's kind of got the reverse of that, in a sense that she is she has to learn how to be a child, pretty much. Um and yet she kind of still looks after him, you know, she goes out, she takes care of him, she buys groceries, you know. It's the the kind of, you know, if we're talking about like a father figure slash daughter dynamic, mm. I think this movie works really, really well because these are two disparate, desperate people who are thrust into each other's lives in a, a, tr- a complete tragedy of circumstance. You know, you've got these corrupt DEA officers, a drug ring, all of that sort of stuff. And the way that her family are killed is just horrendous. Like, absolutely horrendous. The You know, the father is complicit. But everyone else in that apartment is innocent. Mm-hmm. And they just, these people literally do not care. You know, it's like, yes, Leon's a killer, but at least he has morals because he always says no women, no kids. But Stansfield has none of that. He's just like, "I want what I want, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get what i want and so it's like it's like you've got levels of evil in this movie, but i I kind of like that that it's like it doesn't excuse Leon for being the person that he is. it knows Leon is a killer, but it places Stansfield and his goons as just being the absolute worst of the worst <laughs> i don't I mean I don't think that there's a bad guy in cinema who Well, maybe there is one that's worse, but I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who is worse than someone like Stansfield when he is literally just killing killing four-year-old children for no reason other than they are in this apartment room. Apartment room? apartment
0: you know what i mean <laughs> the old the old apartment room where uh, where michael Serra records his uh soundtracks <laughs> the apartment
2: room.
0: uh it, it, but i i'll just i'll jump yeah, in with just yeah, a, a quick note on that because i think it's i think it's great I, I love the fact that there's a lot of setup and payoff on that in this film and that's mm-hmm. exactly what it is with with luke uh sorry with luke with leon uh with the sit ups but one thing I, I thought was interesting about um jean renault is i just love the fact that he's able to be completely cold and also very warm. Yeah. Like it To be able to play both of those things simultaneously yes. in some scenes is a masterstroke. I don't know how he does it, but you can tell
1: that he cares deeply without showing any affection whatsoever. And it's like a very silent performance, too. And, you know, I think in some ways, rightfully, you know, Gary Oldman and Natalie Portman were the ones that people really celebrated coming out of this movie. But Jean Reno's performance is difficult because it is not flashy it's often just observing the other characters there's a point earlier in the movie where he's just sitting and watching it's always fair weather the gene kelly musical Mm -hmm. which by the way if you haven't seen that movie make your life better people check that one out but um just like the wonder he has on his face this very like childlike awe watching the film and then later on that's the one thing he recognizes when they're playing that like dress-up game is gene kelly and The way that is a setup and payoff, but just like speaks to the innocence of this character who is like transported by just the magic of the movies. I absolutely loved it. And there are so many scenes of him where this should be a guy who is just like beyond cynical and dark. But there is like Mm -hmm. this kind of childlike spirit to him, like the way he can come to life when he is bouncing off Matilda. And Matilda is very much the dominant personality in this relationship very often. He can't even check into a hotel room at all. I completely agree.
0: And I it just struck me because M posed the question, is there anyone worse in cinema history about uh, Gary Oldman's character? It all kind of connected in my head all of a sudden because I thought about The Rocketeer, a film that came out a couple of years before this. And you've got Timothy Dalton's character, who is, of course, a Nazi. Yeah, so He is the yeah. worst of the worst. That, but,
2: that That's pretty bad, yeah.
0: Yeah, but you've also got the criminals that are working for him until they realize he is one. And they turn around and help the Rocketeer and say, oh,
2: it was, he says,
0: I am I, I wouldn't work for no two-bit Nazi, I'm an American or something like that. Didn't and he say, like, I may be a criminal, but I'm still an American or something? That's it. And he's like, go get him, kid. And you get the score come in and it's like, yeah, <laughs> great. Mo- I, lo- I love the Rocketeer. I'll talk about it all day. But that, that it, yeah, that that sort of, you can be evil and good at the same time. Mm-hmm.
2: there's there's levels of evil is what we're saying different tiers your, your evil is tiered <laughs>
0: evil is tiered
2: <laughs> but yeah stan Stansfield is literally the worst
0: yeah literally is yeah um but cam what about you something you
1: liked i mean i just want to talk about gary oldman <laughs> i want to like shine a light on all the production design and everything but like gary oldman to me is absolutely incredible and there is a scene in this where he confronts natalie portman In a bathroom where she is going to try to kill him. Mm -hmm. This is, and I'm going to tilt it over to Natalie Portman as well. Maybe I should just tie the two together as the two showy performances in the movie. The ones that people really talk about. Natalie Portman is very young. She is going up against one of the biggest actors of his time. One of the greatest, (laughs) one of the most decorated, although not an Oscar winner at that point in time. I don't even think he'd been nominated at all. But nonetheless, one he was kind of like the actor's actor. All actors were in awe of Gary Oldman. She holds her own against him. And he is giving his all. He is doing that twitching, convulsing, like, wh- horror movie demon acting going on when he's taking his drugs. And then the whole scene where he's trying to intimidate her and, you know, waving the gun at her. And the way she plays that is unbelievable. That might be my favorite scene in the whole movie. Because you are watching two of the best actors play off each other and it is just coming to life. It may not get the attention of, say, like, I don't know, De Niro and Al Pacino in Heat. That sort of thing. But, my God. Like, the fireworks that come off these scenes are what make this movie special to me. Because you can look at a lot of their films that have impressive action. This movie has impressive, impressive action. But the fact that when you are not dealing with incredible action scenes, you are watching pyrotechnics go off between these actors, it just gives the entire movie a propulsive feeling that just sucks you in.
0: It, it's truly wonderful in terms of an acting showcase. And I and I think it goes beyond Renaud. I think it goes really beyond Oldman, goes beyond Portman. I think basically everyone in this film puts in a good performance. But going back to, to Gary Oldman, I remember reading a note saying he just decided to go big with it. <laughs> and I mean, I, I I think big is an understatement when it comes to this performance. Uh, it, it was big in all caps. Yeah, it was, it, it was, it was bold as well uh, it, on word. And uh, yeah, it was, I don't know, underlined. If that helps. And then word art, maybe hmm. um, it's, he goes for it. And I appreciate that he is, because you could take it as sort of farcical. It It, it it could ruin the film that performance some people but he really just it works somehow that this huge performance sweeps through and you somehow believe it
1: when he is sniffing matilda's like dad early in the movie where he's like listen to his music and and one of the goons says like he can sniff out lies or something along those lines and then gary oldman comes over and literally starts sniffing him I'm like, this is genius. Like, it could be so cartoonish. And in a different movie, it wouldn't work. But Mm -hmm. Gary Oldman, I think, very much understands the tone that Luc Besson is going for and plays to it perfectly. I I was just trying
0: to think for a second if anyone else could do this at this point. But this feels a distinctly Gary Oldman performance.
1: I mean, I'd be very interested to see what this character looks like on the script. Yeah. Uh page because I I wonder if it feels like a little more generic bad guy, because we've seen other Luc Besson movies, and there's been lots of generic villains in Luc Besson scripts. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how much of that was Luc Besson writing a script, giving kind of a, you know, it's a it's a functional bad guy. It's a DEA agent who's evil, who is tied into this entire conspiracy involving drugs and Natalie Portman's character. On the page. It's more of a plot-driven character, but I think like Gary Oldman is someone who maybe looked at what was on the page and said, because it said he improved a lot of his own dialogue. How much Mm -hmm. of that was him just like, I got to amuse myself. I want to make this a character that stands out. And maybe that's why a lot of other Luc Besson movies have generic villains versus this. You need a Gary Oldman to elevate it. Also, if you're going to do like 50 takes of the same scene, you might as well do it and have fun. Yeah. He looks so sweaty in this movie. Like <laughs> Gary Oldman looks like he's on like high, high caliber drugs throughout this movie. Like there's something just seeping through every pore of this character in every single sequence. His eyes look dilated. It's unbelievable. And this is, how, folks, this is how you
0: can tell Cam has never had a narcotic in his life because he called them high caliber. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> give me that. Give me that high caliber stuff, mate. <laughs> Do now picture me in like back alleys like I need the high caliber stuff. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Fuck me (laughs) up. (laughs) It
2: it does feel like though, when when we're talking about Gary Oldman, just Gary Oldman as an actor in general, I feel like it's very rare that well, maybe it's just my cinematic history, but Gary Oldman tends to go big or go home. Mm. You don't get a Gary Oldman performance. He doesn't phone it in. I've never seen him phone it in. I've always seen Gary Oldman give... Scott, you're kind of looking a bit like... Ooh, I, what?
0: Go, go, go and watch Criminal from 2016
1: and come back and talk to me. That, that, that one. Yeah,
2: okay. I, I, I've not seen that one.
1: I disagree. He is screaming his brains out in that movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, you're right, actually. You're right. He is going for it.
2: I guess what I'm saying is I feel like Gary Oldman's the sort of actor that you get on the phone when you want a really unhinged not necessarily villainous but a memorable performance you you ring Gary Oldman because you know he's the sort of actor that that primarily does stuff like that and this could have easily been the you you generic bad guy but then you get Gary Oldman to do it and like he does with every other role that he's ever done in his life you know he brings it to life in his own unique very memorable way um and you know i think I think all three of us could sit here forever talking about the kind of powerhouse trio of of performances because each of them is so pitch perfect Mm -hmm. in this movie with the material that they've got. And, Cam, like you said, you know, Natalie Portman, 12 years old. Yeah. Up against, what, Jean Reno, 40-something. I assume Gary Oldman was maybe 30s, early 40s, something like that. But still, you know... Acting talent as they were, and a twelve-year-old going up against someone like Gary Oldman, completely matching her in the scene.
0: I've seen what I was like at twelve, and I could never, I could never pull that up. I would be a weeping mess on the floor. <laughs> uh,
2: what, what are you saying? You saying you didn't look or act like <laughs> Natalie Portman when you were twelve?
0: Some might say I looked like her, but
2: <laughs> maybe we need to like put you, maybe we need to put you in like that straight sort of dark haired wig and see because you know maybe there maybe there's (laughs) maybe there's something maybe there is a matilda uh that we can find a 12 year old matilda but
1: you you had me at having hair back (laughs) (laughs) i was just thinking of like where gary oldman was at this point too because the year before this movie he does tony scott's true romance where he completely steals the entire movie from like just a murderer's row of a-list stars uh where he plays drexel the drug dealer and he's only in the movie for like eight minutes, but you never forget him. And then after this movie, he's the villain in the fifth element, which is also maybe the biggest performance in a movie that also has Chris Tucker in yes, it.
2: Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. I can't fault that.
0: Um well I I suppose then I'll I'll close off the like section by just talking about the production side of things, because we've we've cherished the acting. We've cherished a little bit of the directing, I suppose. But I mean from I think Eric Sarah, Eric Sarah. Thank you. Not Michael. A score that works for Eric Sarah. A score that works after listening to GoldenEye for so many years. Although a lot of this has like the GoldenEye noise, like that hitting a pan with a wooden spoon. Yeah. thing. It's in here, but it works a lot better than it does in GoldenEye. This feels like they had the right uh, composer for the film on like GoldenEye. Um, the cinematography, I'm going to get the person's name up, but it, it's a wonderful it's a master class in filmmaking from the full crew side of things like not just director it's yeah everyone is bringing their a game the cinematographer is Thierry Arbogast I should say um I hope I pronounced that right Thierry let me know uh but it, it it's gorgeous to look at they take time to make these shots look gorgeous when they some of these shots could be just throw away completely there's, there's shots of them from the bottom of the staircase looking up as the SWAT mm-hmm. team is coming around just to get people like they don't have to make them look this good but they do it, it's i feel like it's problems aside for a second i feel like Luke Besson and his team had a vision and they saw it through to the end and they did exactly what they wanted with this film. They, they, they
1: had a ship on their shoulder there, something to prove, and I think they proved it. Luc Besson makes great looking movies. Whether you like them or not, like a movie like Valerian, which I think a lot of people don't like, Valerian looks incredible. Yeah, He very much surrounds himself with, you know, artists that are at the top of their field. And Leon may be a very modest production. You know, as we said, mm-hmm. it was a very quick shoot. It was 90 days. But, like, he makes this movie look incredible. And you can think of so many other action movies that would have been shot over a similarly quick period, and they would have been, you know, basically straight-to-video-level kind of action junk. Like, they wouldn't have the attention to detail that a movie like this has that I think is just very intuitive to him. I don't think he sits there and spends hours and hours and hours and hours designing these things. I think he just has a very visual imagination and knows how to make it work and how to work with a team to achieve it. The way they shoot... Leon's apartment at the start of the movie where it's just like that sparse kitchen kind of the yellowed walls and everything but you just can't stop looking at the um the pig oven mitt hanging on the fridge it just stands out so much like he knows how to compose that shot so your eyes are just constantly drawn to that oven mitt which does pay off again later like again it's a lot of visual setup and then very overt payoff
0: and and uh you know Jean Reno's piggy acting (laughs) is top-notch.
2: <laughs> it's <laughs> so good, the piggy acting.
1: We interrupt this program to bring you a special report.
0: Calling all agents. Keeping the lights on at SpyHards HQ ain't cheap. And frankly,
1: is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the SpyHards Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favourite spy icons and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a
0: Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com
1: slash today. Cam, tell the people what we have in our sights this week. Catch up now with our November offerings, including reviews of The Bodyguard and Cowboys and Aliens, plus The Debrief, where we reviewed the new James Bond reality show, 007 road to a million did eon strike gold this time find out
0: but before this message self-destructs cam resume the spy chinks okay we've doused this film in praise but we need to talk a little bit more about its downsides because no film is perfect and there is one big downside this film has um Em, I'm going to throw it to you first. Is there something you want to talk about when it comes to you know, dislikes for the film?
2: I mean, what, are we talking apart from the obvious elephant in the room?
0: This, this is the thing, yeah. It, I mean, if, I, I, open conversation, I don't think I have a dislike apart from that massive one, personally speaking.
2: To be honest, I don't think there is. Um, I, I think that this movie is genuinely, without all of that, genuinely mm-hmm. terrific um you know like you have said earlier scott the pacing is excellent in this movie you know it's not like there's anything that kind of drags
3: no
2: um the cinematography is great the score is great the acting's great the characters are great so i kind of feel like in a way it's a bit sad because it's like this could truly be up there as one of the masterpieces of cinema. You know, when people talk about things like The Godfather, um, mm-hmm. you know, Lord of the Rings, you know, the, generally the the ones that people are like, well, cinematic masterpieces. This could very easily be up there. But it's not for very clear and obvious reasons. Yep. Um, and to be honest, for me, that is by and large the biggest problem With this movie,
0: it's 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 entirely fine. I think it maybe this is just where we have a little bit more of a discussion about that elephant because you know one thing Cam has always said on this show, and it's something I've begun to adopt myself, is when you get let's say problematic elements in cinema. I I mentioned Remo Williams earlier. The other one, famously on this show, is one of our dinosaurs is missing. Um, But
1: we we even talked about like elements of the movie Spy Ship fairly recently.
0: Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Um, is, does the problematic element overpower the film? Is it something that's in it briefly? Like one moment of insanity against a film that works wonderfully? Or is it baked into the film itself? Like Remo Williams, for instance, Joe Gray is there throughout the entire film. With Leon, the problematic element is there from scene one through to the end. There is no escaping this. It will always hang over this film. And I don't think it should be given a free pass to be number 38 on the top 100 films of all time on IMDb without an asterisk, asterisk, I can never say that word correctly,
1: (laughs) mark next to it to say, proceed with caution. And I know there's probably people listening who are like, get over it, get over it. But I, I don't think this movie's kind of icky elements are going to diminish. No. I think if anything, they're going to amplify in the decades to come. Like, I think this kind of leering male gaze in filmmaking especially aimed at like you know an underage girl is not going to age (laughs) it's already not aged well but it's not going to age better it's going to get more and more kind of Ooh, i don't know that this is a movie that is necessarily a popular favorite in 40 years for example
2: yeah I, i i totally agree i feel like you can't i i okay i guess i really struggle with the people who Are apologists for this movie, and it's like, yeah, but it's a great movie. And we're not we're not saying that it's not, we are agreeing and saying, yes, it is a great movie. But when you have the whole kind of art imitating life, and there's a real person out there Mm -hmm. who was in that role of Matilda, let's be frank. I'm sorry, but you can't detach yourself from that. This that's not fiction for her, that's her real life, you know. There will be people out there who will say, well, she was 15 and she consented. But no, that is no excuse. She was still 15. And they will say, well, yeah, but she, she had the man's child when she was 16.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, but she was still 16. You know, 16 is no age. When, when a man is 32, 33 and a girl is 16, that is a huge kind of power shift, power dynamic you know, I myself was in a relationship with a guy who was 26 when I was 17. Mm. And it's only when I look back, and I see to myself how controlling he was, and he was very controlling. That was like my first real relationship. So I didn't know any different. I was 17, you know. And
3: Mm.
2: I think that's why it sticks so firmly with me. Because yes, Although legally, you know, the age of consent here in the UK is 16. So, yes, I everything was completely legal and above board. However, I was 17, he was 26. And he had all of the power, all of the money, you know, all of that. The, the dynamics in our lives were very different. You know, I was basically still at college. He was working, you know. There's just so many complexities to relationships in general, but especially where you've got an age gap where one person is essentially a teenager and the other person is considerably older. And I think that's why this movie affects me so deeply is while I was not 12, I was not 15, I was not 16, Mm -hmm. 17 is still no age to be in a relationship with someone who is basically nine years older. If I could go back and, and change that, of course I would, mm-hmm. because I see how toxic that was. I think because I have that emotional resonance to personal experience, I feel very strongly about movies like this and about people who will apologize for movies like this. Because fiction is fiction and real life is real life. But when fiction is based on real life, that yeah i i can't i can't make excuses for that nor should you and and none of us sh- should have to make excuses for that it should just be no line drawn this is not good
0: there's a very big difference between legality and morality
3: mm.
2: absolutely uh,
0: much as you say the age of consent in, a- in our country m is 16 but what this what happened with you is morally certainly ambiguous i would I would and you have said straight upon the wrong side of things um, and if you just and what, what sort of gets my goat about this film is because it, we talk about the power dynamic in the relationship with Luke Besson and, and my when there's also a power dynamic as a filmmaker and an audience mm. he as a filmmaker is fetishizing this lifestyle and that's what gets my back up with this 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 part of this film we've said it's wonderful all these things are great about this film but this
1: bit isn't and for me it's something that will always stain the legacy of of, of leon i think the one thing that doesn't tip this movie into completely unwatchable territory is the Jean genre performance and that he plays it so innocent that i think that is kind of giving a lot of audiences and maybe us to a degree like an accessibility to the material to be able to watch this movie and walk away being like this is a very good movie because like it manages to walk a certain tone line mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that the problematic elements don't loom over it the whole time and, and and that's how i think it will forever
0: will remain when it comes to me and it, and it sounds like it everyone else here agrees with that so i think it it seems like there's not a lot of other things to talk about and dislikes apart from that. But
1: Cam, I'll just throw it to you. Do you have anything to add? I really don't. Like, that really was the thing for me that just didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And also, like, and I said it up front, like, I think that's where uh, Luke Besson's direction actually fails. I think he is, you know, brilliant when it comes to the action and various other elements. But when it comes to, I think, managing to channel what he's trying to do with the Natalie Portman character, I think, mm-hmm. I, I don't think he succeeds. Or he succeeds in something else. Yes. Like, I think in terms of trying to convey someone who is trying to convey sexuality as a means of basically aging herself up in the eyes of someone else. Mm -hmm. I don't think he succeeds because he's undercutting what the character is doing versus how he's seeing her. No, no, you're right.
3: Well, let's.
0: Before we get to the knock list and sort of wrap up this conversation, just throwing out any sort of final notes that people have, I've got a couple of sort of questions, so I'll, I'll open up the discussion with a question. Uh, we mentioned the impression scene. I quite like that scene myself, mostly because of the John Wayne impression. Oh, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty good. Luke, uh, yeah, he does a pretty good, um, John Renault, I should say, does a pretty good John Wayne impression. But I'll ask everyone here, what's your go-to celebrity impression? Oh, my
1: God! uh, you're putting me on the spot here um <laughs> do I have one oh, I don't know, cam, do you have one? You've been around for more
0: years than I have, oh my, oh, he goes for the George decay <laughs> okay oh, what a cheat yeah, what a cheat classic. okay, all right red alert yeah okay yeah oh, yeah, there is a obligatory red alert uh mine was actually gonna- <laughs> mine was going to be William Shatner. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but now I can't do it anymore. Hmm. 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 Mm. Mm. Uh,
0: no pressure now, but we've both done our silly impressions. Have you got one for us?
2: The only one that I can think of, because I'm not really big on impressions because I'm not, <laughs> because I suck at them. <laughs> just generally, um,
0: So do we, it's fine.
2: <laughs> but, I so at throughout my life, just generally, um, I, I do quote like a lot of movies, but mostly they tend to be like for some reason 90s teen movies because I guess that's what I grew up with. Sure, and the only one that I can really think of is like stuff from Clueless.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
2: Um, so, <laughs> so things like you're a virgin who can't drive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's. I mean, Clueless is so immensely quotable. Just generally, uh, uh, what is that? It's a dress. Says who? Calvin Klein.
0: <laughs> Didn't it recently have an anniversary or something like that? I-, I swear there was like a big hoo-ha about Clueless recently. Uh,
2: uh well, it it will do because I think it came out well i think it was it 94 95 so it's gonna have a big anniversary in the next couple of years yeah um but i mean it is it is the pinnacle of of us teen comedy uh so uh, obviously buffy as well like i mm. i would say that i probably quote them both equally but clueless was the first that came into my head so not a bad uh, one and and, and obviously, surfing the Crimson Wave, uh, that's one of my favourites to bring about every month. Uh, again, I'm surfing the Crimson Wave. What's happened?
1: Um, <laughs> What's happened? Where's the show gone?
3: <laughs> oh,
2: no. Happy 150th, guys!
1: <laughs> yeah. Woo-hoo. Scott, I was going to say I was surprised that uh, David Lynch wasn't your go-to. Uh, my David Lynch impression is so
0: specific. Yeah. Like I need to, it takes me like half hour to get into the character and then I can hold it down for a while, but I haven't ramped up to it. Sure. Maybe one day I'll record an outro in David Lynch
3: style. Mm. Would you like
1: that? That would be amazing. And yeah, like for me, I don't know that I do that many celeb impressions. I tend to do more like character impressions and things like that, but not actors. You do a pretty good uh, Kermit the Frog, which we've heard before. Well, Thank you.
3: (laughs) that's really good.
0: Kermit's a, a celebrity, we'll, we'll sure, take that Sure, take why that. not yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, I'll throw it to you Em, any, any sort of notes Or things you'd like to bring up about the film before we wrap up
2: I mean the only other things that I had On my notes were that I was glad That they didn't show the death of the little boy Because I feel like that would have again Kind of taken things a bit too far mm-hmm. We obviously had The mother brutally shot In the bath and then we had the Well, I think the teenage daughter was shot first uh, And then the mother but I feel like the fact that we see a incredibly terrified little boy running away was enough, and I'm really glad that they didn't go further on that. Because again, it's like we've talked about it tipping over into unacceptable. Mm. Showing the death of a four-year-old child, I think, would have taken it down that route. Yeah. Um, I think I've kind of I've mentioned everything else on my notes, so I don't think I've got anything else to add.
3: Okay.
2: Um, although I will say that I am absolutely terrified about whether this gets on the knock list or
1: not. Uh, well, uh, wow.
2: <laughs> because I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs>
1: Buckle your seatbelts. We'll find out it's, in a moment.
0: It's going to be an interesting conversation, <sighs> I think, okay. that one. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing... Well, maybe
1: not looking forward to is the right word. But Cam, any notes you have? I have a few. Um, I thought it was a really nice parallel between the moment where Natalie Portman is sobbing at Leon's door and one of the all-time great acting moments in this movie. Like, oh my God. But... Um, when the door opens, there's a light that shines on her face. Yes. Which is like giving her life. Leon at the end is walking towards the door onto the street and is shot by Gary Oldman and he gets a burst of light, and that's death for him. Wow. I thought that was a really oh, interesting yes. book ending that's kind point. of motif they had going there of like characters seeing light and representing different things. Much like M said, set up and payoff. Yep. Um, I like that Leon uh sleeps. In a chair with the gun next to him, it reminded me of Bond and Doctor No. I thought about it every single time it happened.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you sleep sat up? Yes, I can actually. I do. That's how I have my naps after work. That terrifies me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I like the little comedy beats of when they, whenever they have to move, whether it's Natalie Portman firing the gun out the window. Or her going down and telling the hotel clerk that uh, Jean Renault's character is her lover. And then it just cuts to them moving. I thought that was actually very funny. Like, the movie works in these very, like, amusing comedic beats. Very dry. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, That's that was, that was funny, yeah. And just the other thing I had was the whole little world between Natalie Portman's family in that one, like, scene of them. Mm-hmm. That tells you so much. It's, on one hand, very cartoonish and over the top. But, like, it's mesmerizing. Like, watching Michael Batalucho walk around in that vest shirtless, I'm like, I need to bring that look back. <laughs> this guy's incredible. <laughs> and, you know, the style of the mom and, like, her leopard print, everything about that entire scene is just incredible. Like, that is kind of the belief. There's no small scenes. Every scene should be, you know, unforgettable.
0: It's um it, it's a great scene. And you also get the one of the cops uh, going through their record collection. Yeah. And I was looking him up whilst I was doing my research, and the character's name is First Stansfield's Man, okay? But uh, his actual real knife name is actually far more fascinating.
1: His his actual name is Willie Oneblood. Yeah, I don't know a lot about this guy, but there is a little bit of a note in the IMDb trivia for him, and I don't know if this is true, so sure. I don't necessarily stand by this, but that says Gary Oldman based his character in true romance off of him. Which is, like, kind of believable just by the look. Uh, but I don't know if that's true. I'd have to uh, do some research on Tour romance to determine if that's the case. Interesting. Apparently, though, Willy One Blood is a realtor now, according to IMDb. Well, good for him.
2: Yeah. Of course, that makes total sense. Um, just to kind of interject, if I may, I have thought of something else that I forgot to put on my notes that I really liked.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so, you know, at the end or towards the end when they're storming the apartment... And obviously, Leon has sent Matilda down the shaft to escape, and you've got that lovely scene between them, and they're kind of saying their goodbyes to each other, but he says you know we'll 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 meet each other again kind of thing mm-hmm. it's uh, that's actually really nice i I really really like that scene between the two of them um but then you've got the scene which I totally forgot that i that was in the movie where he dons the get up yeah. for the d e a officer and you know, ends up getting rescued because they think he's an injured officer. And all of these officers, like, they don't recognize him because they don't know mm-hmm. who they're looking for. Um, and, you know, he very almost gets away with it. You know, he very almost gets out of the door. And if if not for Gary Oldman, you know, being the the most Gary Oldman that ever Gary oldman <laughs> in a movie, um, he would have got away with it too if it wasn't for that pesky Gary Oldman. Um, but that kind of idea of disguising yourself as a police officer or... I mean, it's, it's it's been done in movies before, but I find it really effective because that scene is actually quite tense as he's kind of traversing down the stairs, going down past all these officers. And there are hundreds of mm-hmm. officers here. You know, Gary Oldman's basically like, I want everyone. Like, get everyone here. I want to get this guy. Everyone! um, And... There's so many officers lining these halls and stairs. And it's it's actually quite a nice tense moment, you know, thinking, well, is he going to be recognised? Is he not? And it's like he almost gets there. And it's like it just snatches that victory away from you right at the last minute. But it's so well done. It's so well crafted that scene. And um, yeah, it's just in your heart of hearts, you want Leon to get out of this life to, you know, to have a good life, to have his money, um, you know, the fact that he made provisions for Matilda to have his money is also something that I think is quite nice because I think he knows that his time is up mm. and that's why he makes those provisions. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he, he can't, it, it's kind of double-edged sword, really. He sets Matilda up with the money, but he also sets her up for this life as well, which I mentioned at the start. Uh, which I think is quite poignant too. But yeah, I didn't put that in my notes, but I, I, I genuinely think that scene is terrific.
0: Well, there's a really good sense of, if I remember correctly, they, there's even shots of like POV shots from behind the mask. Yeah. There's a very real sense of like claustrophobia as he's coming down the stairs because he's surrounded yeah. by these police officers that should just be shooting him mm. and he's trying to make his way out. So you're you're on side cheering him on, obviously he gets killed at the last moment, but yeah. That is a very
1: claustrophobic scene, very very well put together. Cam, anything else for us? The only other thing I had noted was, um, if you look at IMDb, they credit the song Experience of Love by Eric Serra as coming from this movie. And there was a part at the end where Natalie Portman's character is walking down the street. And the strumming guitar made me immediately think of that song. It sounded like it. The song is not in the movie. It's not in the final credits, but it is listed on IMDb. And I've seen people say online that uh, the song in Goldeneye that closes out Goldeneye was culled from this movie. So maybe it was a cut song that was not used at the end of the day.
0: Oh, okay.
1: All right. Let's uh, call out to our super sleuths out there. If you can find
0: out, if you can dig up the the clip from Leon and put it up against the experience of loving Goldeneye. Let's see if we can
1: figure out a little bit of trivia here. Get get some uh, IMDB changes. Because it has that final song in this movie by Sting. Mm-hmm. and to me when I hear the Eric Serra song The Experience of Love it sounds like a Sting knockoff
3: sure. and yeah. so
1: it would make sense to me that maybe he composed it and they thought oh wait we can get Sting let's do a, sing st- uh, a Sting song instead a Sting song? I know that's very difficult to say <laughs>
0: mm. very difficult to hear too thanks again <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> um, well let's, uh, let's wrap it up now it's a question I think a lot of people are sort of tentatively wondering what we're going to do with this knock list time is lay on the professional making the knock list em you're our guest guests always go first oh, what do you think yes or God, no this is just a i'll preface oh. i'll preface with the the knock list is the need to see official classics of the spy hard canon it is the list of films we hand to someone saying if you're watching spy films if you've never seen a spy film before these are the ones you need to see
2: uh, but that's why this is so hard yeah because Even you describing the definition does not make it easier. Because I think, in an ideal world, I think we would all say yes immediately. Mm -hmm. This is a real. This is really difficult.
3: Do you want me to go first?
2: Would you mind? If you've made your decision.
0: I usually go last, but I'm happy to go first in this scenario. I'm breaking tradition, folks. That's right. Okay. It's a no. I cannot acknowledge. I cannot oblige, I cannot allow uh, anyone as a filmmaker who thinks this kind of behavior is good to be celebrated. I acknowledge this film is good. I acknowledge this film is a visual splendor to watch. It's great craftsmanship from a filmmaking perspective. But as an overall message, I don't want it on the knock list. I don't think people should have to see this to have seen the whole spy canon. Personally
1: speaking. Cam. Uh, I mean, I was kind of always a no on this one. And it's because actually you cited it earlier. The Rocketeer. We love The Rocketeer. The Rocketeer is not a, like that much of a spy movie. I don't think the Professional is much of a spy movie. I think like when we are talking about Hitman movies, and this you know, we are gonna cover more Hitman movies in the future. Maybe we'll do Columbiana mm. because frankly I wanna see what the professional two would be. But yeah, me too. to me, like when I'm talking about Day of the Jackal, and this is something I'm looking for very closely in hitman movies, which ones can apply under the spy umbrella? I think Day of the Jackal does. I think you're seeing espionage. You're seeing covert tactics. The Edward Fox mm-hmm. character in that movie is giving off the sense of spy craft or tradecraft. He
0: goes undercover. Yeah,
1: He yes. goes undercover in that, in that club. He does all sorts of stuff. Yes. I think the mechanic has certain elements of it. That didn't make the knock list, any of them. But there is a certain amount of, like, tradecraft going on with that character. In mm-hmm. this movie, not really. We don't have any sense as to kind of the tradecraft of this character, other than he's very good at showing up and shooting people. Uh, it's much more of a relationship film. It doesn't feature, like, you know, anything that's particularly tied to the spy world. I think it's a very good hitman film, but do I think it is deserving of belonging on the list of the all-time great spy films? No. <laughs> I just don't think it applies and maybe that's a cheap way of getting out of grappling with the larger issues of the movie for me, but I can't lie. That was how I felt you know watching it for the show. I'm just like this this falls into the rocketeer. I love the rocketeer, but it doesn't belong on the knock list. I completely understand it. Um and
0: I'm glad we both had different perspectives on it. But m ha- have our votes helped sort of give you yours?
2: I think I think it's very clear. Mhm. Uh that I'm very conflicted about this movie in so many ways. As I've said, as we've all said, the problematic elements of this movie overwhelm this movie. And the reason why I was so unsure about the knock list, I think, was because I am so deeply conflicted about this movie. Because I want, I genuinely want to be able to recommend this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be able to tell people, yeah, you should definitely see this. And obviously, when we are talking about your knock list in particular, you know, I appreciate what Cam is saying about talking about spy movies in particular. I genuinely think that this, as a a piece of filmmaking, this deserves to be IMDb Top 40 or whatever it's currently sitting at,
3: Hmm.
2: as a piece of filmmaking. But the Luc Besson of it all, the... Overt sexualization of it all. The stuff that I really, really struggle with overpowers this movie to such a degree. And yet I'm still really conflicted (laughs) on it because it is such a great movie. I think Heart of Hearts, being completely 100% honest, with you both, with everyone who's listening to this, I can't in all good conscience recommend this movie. Hmm despite the fact that we have all said this is a great movie. And it actually pains me a little bit to say that, because we should be recommending this movie. Not maybe not necessarily as as Cam suggested, maybe not for the knock list. But yeah, there's 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 a lot of conflicting thoughts. However, I feel like when you have situations such as the one that's been uh, described in detail by my Wen uh, and also Natalie Portman following the making of this movie there are people in the world who do kind of apologise for this movie and just say yeah mm-hmm. but it's art and I'm just that just makes me feel so deeply uncomfortable that we we should not be normalising this behaviour, we should not be normalising the male gaze on a 12 year old girl it's just it's just a level of um, wrong that I I feel like deeply taints this movie.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, but but again, I'm still so conflicted about it because it, 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 if this was a terrible movie, it would it I would not care.
0: It'd be so much easier in a sense. Mm-hmm. You could just dismiss it out of hand. Yeah,
2: I wish it. I wish I wish it mm-hmm. was a terrible movie. In all yeah. honesty, I, agree. I wish it was. It's not, but. I, I i feel like i heart of hearts i have to say no
0: okay i think between us i think we've sort of run the gamut of reasons why this shouldn't go on the knock list and i you know i'm keen to hear from you all this is a divisive film for some this uh, some people's in their top tens it's a a big film to a lot of people uh, let us know do you think it should be on the knock list i want to hear from you and your reasons why it should or, or shouldn't make the knock list let us know on on social media but there you go, folks. Three no's and as such, Leon is not making the Noclius dossier on the film as complete and filed as classified. M. What a welcome back to the show. <laughs> <laughs>
2: what,
0: it wasn't a fluffy one this time, to be fair. It's yeah. you know, true. It's something something to so, talk about. Definitely.
2: We've we've kind of passed the point of Angelina Jolly's knickers now, haven't we? And
0: <laughs> We we have. Yeah, we're far away from uh, making music in Michael Sarah's studio, but you know, I, I'm glad you've come back on the show. I thank you for taking the time to come back and talk about Leon with us. It's a big film. That's why we chose it for the 150th. It's a big film to talk about. It's a big episode to be a feature length, basically. Um, but there's a lot to talk about, and I'm glad we did. Before we let you go, though, M, where can people find more from you?
2: Well, before I do that, I just want to say again, congratulations on your 150th Oh,
1: thank you. And
2: thank you for allowing me to come back on, talk about Leon. Uh, you know, when, when we kind of talked about doing this, we were like, you know, this is going to be a difficult one to talk about. Mm-hmm. I feel like this has been a very interesting and worthwhile discussion. And I am genuinely looking forward to hearing what your listeners think about the points that we've raised and, you know, hearing feedback from them. Um, and obviously, people want to find me and they want to find what I do. So, my podcast is called Verbal Diorama. And I am a film history podcast. So, I like to talk about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And, um, yeah, just released the 230th episode, I believe. Wow. Uh, Mamma Mia which is very divisive in itself. I mean, you know, if we're talking about comparisons, Leon, Mamma Mia, both very divisive in so many similar ways. It's, um, it's where do you
0: come down, Pierce Brosnan's singing is really the, that's thats the problem.
2: Well, exactly. Some some say that he's the Gary Oldman of singing <laughs> ABBA songs. But who knows? Who knows? Um. So, yeah, if people want to find me, uh, I am all over the social medias. I'm not calling it X. I refuse. I'm going to call it Twitter. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, (laughs) Facebook, Threads, and also Blue Sky now as well uh, at Verbal Diorama because no one chooses a podcast name like me. And, um, yeah, you can find me on all your podcast apps and on social media. And if anyone wants to talk to me about Leon, they can feel free to do so. Um, But, you know, I I think we've covered every point that we needed to cover. Mm-hmm. on this episode this episode's been quite lengthy obviously uh we had a lot to talk about so uh but yeah again thank you so much for having me back it's always a joy to be on spyhards i love you guys i love what you do you are a terrific podcast genuinely one of the best so thank you so much for allowing me to return
0: oh because anytime yeah anytime <laughs> we'll we'll pick a a lighter film for you next time don't worry about that
2: more yeah maybe like maybe like some child spies or something like that
0: like... boss baby yeah, boss baby you've got it it's it's yours uh, i can't wait to hear that episode um but yeah there'll be links in the show notes below to all of the social medias to find verbal diorama where you can find them on podcast apps as well and wherever you're listening to us just search for verbal diorama and you'll find it there too it's a wonderful show and it's a podcast I can actually recommend because I listen. Mm, mm-hmm. Yay! Simple as. And I don't listen to many podcasts and I do mean that when I say it. So check out Verbal Diorama if you don't already. M, thank you for being on the show. You are and remain a superstar.
2: Thank you. Well,
0: there you go, folks. That was our chat about Leon the Professional. We hope we did it justice. There was a lot to take apart with this film. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad we had that conversation.
1: Yeah, the thing about Leon is it is, uh, you know, fraught with some issues that need to be talked about, but it is a very significant movie. And I like to think that uh, we did our best to kind of chronicle all the various elements of the movie that are interesting to us and some of the ones that kind of we bump up against. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, overall, I feel pretty content that we did our best tackling this um, very interesting film. And of course, I want to once again extend my thanks to
0: M from the Verbal Diorama podcast for joining us for the discussion, helping us take apart the film and sharing some of her personal connections to the story in the film as well. It was quite an in-depth conversation, but I think we got to the root of the film and I think we critically appraised it as well as three of us uh, professionals could. (laughs) I like the professionals there. That's a very uh, clever little tagline onto that uh, statement thank you thank you thank you but as always cam the question goes to
1: you what have we got coming up for 151 yes we have a very special spy master interview and it is a big one folks we are joined by director lee tamahori to talk all about the production of 2002's pierce brosnan bond film die another day
0: Yes, we couldn't keep that secret anymore. We had to shake up the system and bring you our chat with Mr. Lee Tamahori. I mean, it gives me an absolute thrill to say we have another Bond director on the show. And in terms of insight into Die Another Day, this is, I mean, some I learned stuff from this chat. I didn't think I'd learn. It's fascinating stuff. And if you've ever been sort of, intrigued about how a Bond film is made this is the one to listen to so folks your mission should you choose to accept it is to join us next week as we speak to the man behind Die Another Day Mr. Lee Tamahori and if you like what you heard on the show please consider leaving us a 5 star review on Apple Podcasts and join the SpyHards DieHards Check us out over on patreon.com spyhards and help support the mission to get us closer to building that website for you. And if you don't already, make sure you follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, Cam and I are off to get some high-caliber stuff with Michael Sarah.